Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 11 A single verse, relevant to Chapter 11, from William Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night, Act 5, Scene 1 But when I come unto my beds, with the hey-ho, the wind and the rain, with tosspot still had drunken heads, for the rain it raineth every day. Wreath to Richmond, ten and a half miles, five hours walking. Since leaving St. Bees, we'd escaped a big drop downpour. However, at Wreath, our luck ran out. The rain bucketed down from a leaden sky, and according to the weather forecast, it would continue to do so throughout the day. Our host family milled about the kitchen, eager to get on with the business in hand. I sat alone at the dining room table whilst the middle-aged son talked. The original house is 17th century, with significant extensions added in the 1960s, he informed me. In heavy weather, the old part of the house remains sound and dry, whilst the recent addition leaks. The old house is typical of its period, long and narrow, its width being limited to 15 feet, the optimum size for usable beams harvested from local oak woods. It was a pleasant surprise to realise that that morning I breakfasted in a fresh and comfortable room of proportions dictated by coppiced woodland practices in play 400 years earlier. Breakfast turned out to be a fraught affair. I find eating whilst somebody is standing over me talking to be a decidedly uncomfortable experience. The elderly landlady and her son talk non-stop from my left, whilst the giant parrots walk raucously from its caged internment to my right. I ate looking down at my plate and occasionally nodded my head like Mr. Dick, the mute-dozy character from Charles Dickens' David Copperfield. Mercifully, the appearance of Peter and Colleen refocused our host's attention on meeting the new arrival's needs. I was left in peace, with only the angry outbursts from the tortured parrot as distraction from the bacon and eggs. We found our way to the Yorkshire Dales by accident, the son proudly proclaimed to his captive audience. We were driving about, looking for a place to take the dog for a walk, his mother chipped in, whilst her husband's head bobbed approvingly round the kitchen door. We came three hundred miles from the south coast, the son continued excitedly, reclaiming centre stage. When we arrived at Reef, the dog took one look at the place and barked approval, cut in the mother, powerless to contain her joy. Reef impressed us also, the father assured us softly. So we sold up down south and moved to Reef, dog, parrot and all, concluded the son excitedly. I was most impressed by the wonderfully eccentric reliance upon the canine's instincts. It's a rare pleasure to meet a family which is prepared to make a 600-mile round trip to find the perfect place for a dog frisbee chase. There can be little doubt that it's unique to find a family of dog lovers prepared to sell up and move house to satisfy their dog's foibles. What I found puzzling, however, was the surety of meaning they attached to the dog's bark. 
I wondered how it was possible to distinguish between a yelp of approval for wreath and the yapping plea of a house-trained dog desperate to cock its leg on the nearest tree. You love this, the son stated, while scraping the leftover yoghurt onto a teaspoon, which he passed carefully to the cockatoo. The watchful parrot grasped the spoon in one claw and drew it slowly into the cage. With great delicacy, it raised the spoon towards its beak and very deliberately licked the yoghurt with its thick, leathery tongue. When all the yoghurt was gone, the cockatoo raised its yellow comb feathers, hunched upwards to the limits of the cage, and with a mighty squawk of rage, flung the spoon across the room. Parrots often live for seventy years or more. The caged cockatoo was a very healthy nine-year-old, which suggests it may be condemned to sixty years crouching in a torturously small cage in a room only fifteen feet wide. No other parrots to fly and mate with, no choice of wild nuts, berries or fresh fruit to eat straight off the bush, no open skies or tropical downpours to cool its blood and wash its feathers clean, and no hint of freedom just a horribly unjustified life sentence of the innocent. The bird and animal-loving household viewed Peter and me with some concern as we prepared to leave. The rain was torrential, and outside everything was running in water. We could have taken the same alternative and gone with Colleen in the car, but that wasn't what we'd travelled halfway round the world to do. Covered from head to foot in our waterproof kit, we were prepared for the worst. Even though my waterproofs are lightweight and thin, they make me feel clumsy, clammy, and confined. They're worn as an outer layer over normal clothes, and so are tight, restricting fluid movement. In truth, most hikers prefer not to wear waterproofs if it's at all possible. Thanks to the surging inflow from the overnight deluge, the river was in full flood and more orchestral than it had been the day before. All morning the melodious waters and the soft rolling hills were our soggy paradise. In no time my feet were sloshing about in spongy misshapen boots. The combination of wet grass, pouring rain and the runoff from my leggings had turned each boot into a foot bath. The plaster protecting the blistered toe had peeled off and rolled into an irritating ball that lodged uncomfortably between my toes. As soon as the opportunity arose, I heaved off the boot, wrung out the socks, and pocketed the plaster. If keeping a plaster, rather than tossing it into the nearest bush, seems to be taking litter consciousness a step too far, think again. I'm appreciative of how little rubbish we'd encountered along the way. For such an absence of litter to be the norm, everyone must play their part, including me. We soon fell into a natural rhythmic ease with the inclement conditions and strolled contentedly through the rain. Occasionally, flashes of silver amidst the dense overcast sky were a reminder that somewhere the sun was shining. Later in the day, the rain eased to a soaking drizzle that turned all, except the lustrous greenery, a frosted glass grey. The diffuse light made the dark ruins of Marrick Priory an uninviting and bleak place. The grim scene was sullied further by the unexpected backdrop of a deserted caravan park that was as drab as a seaside town on a wet, blustery winter's day. For me, however, these impressions were all external. Inside, protected from the elements in my thin waterproof clothes, all was sweaty warmth and clammy dampness. 
Even in this condition, walking in the rain at a steady pace promoted a pleasant feeling of detached solitude, a state of mind similar to walking meditation. The rhythmic pace of footfalls became the mantra that freed the observer within to watch the mind at play. The close patter of rain on my hood was wonderfully personal and intimate. The edge of my hood, pulled tight round my face, limited visibility to a narrow tunnel. With peripheral distractions removed, my attention was focused upon what lay before my eyes and nowhere else. Within this strangely enclosed state, I was overcome by a euphoric feeling of belonging, a sort of drizzly catharsis, which still makes me smile whenever it springs to mind. Beyond the Priory is the leafy-tunnelled Nun's Steps, which lead up the wooded hillside to the village of Marrick. We ascended the dark passageway of great stone steps, which seemed to number more than the days in a year. It was hard not to think of the thousands of nuns who had climbed those steps so long ago, and to wonder how they would react if confronted by a mob of modern-day hikers. How odd the passage of time can be! The mysterious accumulated memory of the place seemed to seep from between the flagstones to bridge a near palpable connection with its distant past. The trail meandered through grassy fields and along quiet country roads. In places, the familiar sappy smell of grass, battered flat and bruised by the overnight storm, stirred thoughts of days long forgotten. The drizzle became so fine, it assumed a life of its own, a surreal presence, swooping and swirling before the breeze. Through the misty mizzle, glossy birds flocked and flashed like a panicked shoal of flying fish, evading an unseen predator. Sheep were everywhere mostly tearing at succulent grass, their enthusiasm unaffected by the weather. They behaved in an irritable fashion, ripping up great lumps of grass to be devoured with the exaggerated eagerness of the starving. One could be forgiven for thinking of them as the genetically modified equivalent of the foie gras ducks and geese of France, bloated birds that are force-fed to enlarge their livers for market. Sheep were the prevailing feature of the day, for we encountered more varieties of woolly jumpers than on any previous sector of the walk. Two breeds in particular are noteworthy. The first hybrid strain was by far the most interesting. The small flock was grazing in an open field bordered by a thick hawthorn hedge. Even on that wet, muddy day, the small flock was neat and spotlessly clean. The slender, upright animals were well turned out in matching uniforms of tropical whites, as though dressed to attend a formal gathering. Many sheep have ears that hang loose or stick out sideways. Our new hosts had long, thin ears that stood up straight and turned to better capture sound. Unlike most sheep, which are by nature edgy and unpredictable, these animals, with their keen, sharp features, appeared to be composed and intelligent. On our approach, they stopped eating and calmly stood their ground. Their alert posture and striking heads gave them a curiously quizzical air. They stood perfectly still, studying Peter and me with a steady gaze. One exceptionally attentive animal couldn't contain its curiosity any further and decided to act. It gave a determined sideways jump, then sauntered up to Peter and with a quiet resolve, sniffed him up and down in the manner of a friendly dog. Finally, it gave Peter and me a slow look of acceptance before sauntering away. The flock stood quite still, watching us until we were out of sight. 
during the entire episode. I didn't notice one sheep release us from its gaze or chew a single blade of grass. We encountered the second mob of sheep near our destination, Richmond. They were contained in a small sheltered meadow alongside a muddy farm track where they attacked the grass with a delicate but frenzied determination. At first glance, they could have been mistaken for pampered vegetarian poodles with an eating disorder and a careless disregard for their own safety. The miniature breed was strangely decorative, with a fleece of long, snow-white spirals of springy threads that hung loose over their stocky frames and fell freely over their small round faces covering their eyes. Even though we were no more than five feet away, the sheep paid us no attention but continued to grub grass with the obsessive drive of the demented. During the afternoon, our spirits sank to a low ebb. Possibly it was having foregone hot chocolate in the last cafe before Richmond. Possibly the unrelenting rain or the hours enduring the clumsiness of waterproof clothing. The most probable reason for our loss of spirit was having once again lost our way. Whatever the cause, the effect was misery. Eventually we found the trail and were heading into a sheltered valley where it became so cold our breath came out in frosty white clouds. Like lively children, we marched on, breathing out through our mouths, producing great billows of vapour. With each cheerful breath, our mood revived and spurred us on towards the garrison town of Richmond. The trail took us past the site of an Iron Age fort and through the dense white cliff wood, which was alive with hundreds, possibly thousands, of young birds milling about through the undergrowth. They were abnormally tame, and only scattered from underfoot when the alternative was to be stood upon. We later discovered that they were mature pheasant chicks, newly released into the wild as future game for sportsmen to shoot and eat. Richmond is by far the biggest settlement on the coast-to-coast -coast trail. It's an old town with a Norman castle and a confident sense of its own place in history. At its centre is a cobbled market square, off which run numerous side streets and intriguing alleyways, full of hidden promise. Peter and I had far more urgent matters on our minds than sightseeing. Just off the market square is the Unicorn, and we headed straight in. Most towns have a pub like the Unicorn, a smoky refuge during the day and a busy meeting place at night. The pub was home to a knot of drowsy daytime drinkers silently studying their pints, whilst the rest of the town were busy beavering away at work. The arrival of two bedraggled strangers triggered only the mildest interest of murmured amusement. It took great effort to wriggle free from my wet weather gear, as my fingers were numb with the cold and I couldn't grip anything. Even after defrosting for five minutes, I still needed both hands to lift a pint of beer. It was all quite odd, as I hadn't felt in the least bit cold walking into town. By the time we'd downed a couple of pints, and I was thawed out, a local, propping up the bar, decided to put us through the third degree. "'Where have you come from?' he asked. "'Wreath,' Peter replied. "'Where are you going?' he continued. "'Robin Hood's Bay,' Peter answered. Whether aroused from their drowsiness by the strange accents, or riveted by the scintillating conversation, I have no idea but a flickering sign of life stirred amongst those slumped on stools at the bar. One by one, their heads swiveled round to gawk in our direction. All movement was in slow motion. After all, afternoon barflies must maintain their cool persona. Why are you going to Robin Hood's Bay? 
our inquisitor persisted. It's a marvellous thing to do, suggested Peter. That's no good reason. You must be mad, were the final words as he swivelled round to stare blankly at the bottles of booze behind the bar. Perhaps we are, Peter agreed, but we're enjoying it. Warm and revitalised, we set off to find our digs. Moments later, we were outside the old brewery, in a delightful square exactly where the guidebook map had shown it to be. Richmond Town Centre towered high above us. It was a splendid sight, with rising terraces of colourful tiled roofs and archways set against the silhouette of the Norman Castle. During planning, Peter had no way of knowing how we'd pull up at this stage of the journey. As a precaution, he'd planned for an extra day in Richmond in case we needed to recover. Colleen had arrived in Richmond earlier in the day and was met with accommodation difficulties. The landlady was welcoming and resolved the booking mix-up with brisk efficiency. I was assigned a splendid space with an ensuite and private sitting room, perfect accommodation for the Richmond stopover. That evening we ate Thai for dinner before searching for a restful nightcap pub. Most of the bars were too dull or smoky enough to kip a herring. We backed out of a more genteel establishment as the lounge was overstuffed with aspidestras, waistcoats and waxed moustaches. We eventually finished up back at the Unicorn, which was heaving with revellers rehearsing for the weekend blitz. On arrival, we were doorstepped by three neatly dressed types in dark suits. At first, I thought we'd been buttonholed by a pack of overzealous Mormons conducting a survey of sinners. On second glance, they didn't fit the bill. They weren't pushy or hail-fellow-well-met, but patient and softly spoken. The plainclothes policemen were trying to piece together the movements of a young woman last seen at the Unicorn eleven weeks earlier. They showed us her photograph and asked if we recognised her. Unfortunately, we couldn't help. When she disappeared, I'd been in the Isle of Man, and Peter and Colleen were still down under. The pub was throbbing to the beat of a local band, and tosspots spilled out of every doorway. We were lucky, and found seats in a corner to the edge of the main throng. The couple at the next table would have been a fine cabaret turn in an Edwardian bordello. It was only the need to break free and come up for air that prevented them going up a notch or two and getting to grips right there and then. As for me, it was back to the old brewery to sit alone in bed, sipping hot chocolate and gnawing on a ginger biscuit whilst watching a replay of Sexy Beast on television.